Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the preaching series on the Beeson Podcast. Uh, Dr. Smith and I enjoy the opportunity of introducing you to some of the great voices in the contemporary pulpit. And today we have the privilege of sharing with you a wonderful sermon by our friend Dr. Brian Chappell. Dr. Chappell is the president and professor of practical theology at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, He has a background in rhetoric. Uh, He's a renowned author, perhaps one of the most popular textbooks on preaching that is uh, in the field today, Christ-Centered Preaching. The sermon we're going to listen to today was delivered at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, as a part of the renowned E.Y. Mullins Lectures on Biblical Preaching. Dr. Smith, I think you were there when this sermon was was preached by Dr. Chappell. Uh, Tell us what we're going to listen to today, this sermon called Repentance That Sings. I have the privilege of introducing him, Dean George, on that particular day. This sermon portrays Dr. Chappell's theological DNA, his homiletical genetic coding, his fallen condition focus in which he describes it as being the mutual human condition which exists between the original hearers of the text and the contemporary readers of the text that requires the grace of that passage. So it's grace latent. It is his attempt to give us the marks of repentance. He really redefines repentance in that he says it is not just the turning away from our works, but the turning to the righteous works uh, of Christ. It's interesting how he starts in the world and then moves the reader to the word. So he opened up by giving three illustrations about things not to do in terms of emulating three baseball players. Louis Tion of the Boston uh, Red Sox, Fernando Valenzuela of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and um, uh, Dwight Gooden of the New York Mets. And he says, don't uh, emulate them in terms of their wind-up. And then he moves into the text and says, don't emulate the rich young ruler because he had a tainted perspective of what uh, righteousness uh, was and what repentance was. Uh, it's really a um, an attempt to provide corrective surgery when it comes to the image of God. Uh, that, as he says, God is not angry with us in terms of... Um, um, of our returning to him. He receives us uh, in terms of our repentance and our rebelliousness when we come to him in repentance. Uh, I do appreciate the fact that uh, he has a highly Christological approach in his message and shows how God in Christ loves us as God loved the rich young ruler, loved him even though the rich young ruler thought the price was too high to lay down his cross and follow uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, He gives us a very poignant statement from uh, John Calhoun, a Puritan, who says, not only must we see our own sin, but we must see the evil of our righteousness. What a statement to make to seminary professors and students and staff to remind us that we still, as children of God, need to understand that it is not works, but it is his righteous works that makes us acceptable unto God. Now, this is a remarkable sermon, Dr. Smith. He he brings together here two concepts that you don't often associate, repentance and singing. Exactly. 
you think about repentance and tears right. and crying. Right. Uh, but he shows that true repentance leads to joy. Right. So listen for the end of this sermon. It'll lift you up. Repentance that sings. Dr. Brian Chapel. Would you look in your Bibles this morning at Mark the 10th chapter? Mark chapter 10 as we'll be reading verses 17 through 22. As you're turning, let me thank the entire community for my welcome and the good time that I have had. Really special time with you. Dr. Robert Smith has been such a wonderful host. I so much thank him for his friendship and escort through the several days here. And again, Dr. Al Mohler, other friends that I have met here, but I particularly cherish the way in which he shares with me his own heart for the Lord's work here and as you reflect that. As you look at Mark, 7, at Mark 10, verses 17 through 22, my purpose is really to follow on some of the ideas that I spoke on from Romans 12 the other day. If by viewing God's mercy, we are made able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will, that is calling for that transforming work of God in us. Transformation begins with an act of repentance. And I want to talk to you today about repentance as it is motivated by that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this passage to which I ask you to turn may seem to be a poor one on which to speak of repentance. For what we see here is a man who does not repent. But it's in that inverse image, in finding out what is not included in a spiritual walk, that we begin to discern what must be included for our own repentance to be right and true. Verse 17 of Mark 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Pray with me. Father, this day teach us your ways, that we might follow in them for the glory of Jesus Christ. Turn us from self to our Savior now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It is that playoff time of year when all would-be baseball players reminisce. I can even think now of watching the 
game films with a little league coach and having him say to prospective pitchers, now, boys. Now, I want you to watch this picture. Now, this is Luis Tiant. He is a great pitcher. Now, you, now you watch him. Now, just as he begins to pitch, as he starts his windup, he's going to lift one foot in the air. And he is going to pivot on the other foot. To gain momentum for his pitch, he is actually going to turn around all the way backwards, turn his back on the batter, and then swing forward to throw the pitch with maximum speed. Now, I want you to watch him. Now, now, do you see that? Do you see how he turns his back on the batter before he pitches? You see him turn his back on the batter? Don't do that. Now watch Fernando Valenzuela. Now this is someone else. Now, now this is a great picture. Now I want you to watch Fernando Valenzuela. Now watch him. Now he's got a, a, a straight eye on the catcher's mitt delivery. Now, now you see how he'll, he'll just get ready to pitch. Now but right at the apex of his pitch, where he's right at the very top of his windup, he's actually going to look up in the air, throw his eyes back in his head, away from the plate, and then throw the pitch. Now, now watch him. You see how, see how he takes his eyes off the mitt? You see how he picks his eyes right up, looks straight up in the air, rolls his eyes back. See how he does that? Don't do that. Now, this is Dwight Gooden. Now, I want you to watch him. Now, now this wind-up is just picture perfect. Now, watch him. Now, he will keep his eyes on the mitt. It's straight ahead, heads up kicks toward the plate, not anywhere else. You, you see that? You see how he just strives to be perfect? You see how in every pitch he strives to have an absolutely perfect wind-up? Don't do that either. Because if you strive to be perfect, it will eat a hole in your soul that you may try to fill with cocaine like Dwight Gooden did. What you have in front of you in this encounter with Jesus is a virtual major leaguer of religious performance. A rich young ruler who is striving to be perfect in every way, who thinks by his religious performance he is going to make himself right before God. And Jesus, through ways that candidly trouble us, points to him and to us and says, if you think it's by your religious performance and your perfections that you will be right before God, you are wrong. Do not do that. You must repent. For us in such a place where we are so concerned by our strenuous religious duties, what we do so meticulously and so carefully and so committedly, there is such a great temptation to believe that it's what we do that's making us right with God. We must hear these words, lest in our major league religious performances, we also forget. We must repent. What is lacking in the repentance of this young man begins to be revealed by a certain convergence of religious truths that Jesus will make plain. First, reminding us that what, what repentance requires is a loathing 
of sin's evil. The way in which that begins to be revealed to the rich young ruler is in the rather startling response to his salutation. The rich young ruler in verse 17 comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. God alone. What must be perceived first for true repentance is the holiness of God. He alone is good. He is high and lifted up. The exalted one, the one who is separate from earth's impurity, He alone is good. It's the beginning, this understanding of the holiness of God toward our repentance. Some of you are aware of that Promise Keepers movement that had its own clergy time at the Georgia Dome this past February, where 45,000 pastors, ministers of the gospel, gathered. And in one particular service, the speaker began to have us try to anticipate what it would be like to be part of the heavenly host, echoing the words of Isaiah 6, repeating, understanding, proclaiming the holiness of God, and asking that one side of the stadium antiphonally respond to another, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of His glory. And as ministers began to hear it, hear the voices of the hosts of earth sing, praise, proclaim the holiness of God, men got out of their seats, began to kneel where they were, some fall prostrate on the ground and say, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, because when the holiness of God is rightly, fully perceived, it must humble fallen creatures. When God's holiness is perceived, we become so aware of our unholiness. But perceiving the holiness of God is but the beginning. For it should lead to the perception of the reality of our sin. It is truly what is lacking here. And Jesus knows it. And so he begins to address the rich young ruler in ways that are in some dimensions preposterous. After all, it all begins with a preposterous question from the rich young ruler. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's the preposterous question to start with. You don't do anything to inherit something. You inherit as a result of your birth and what someone else has done. Which is, of course, a very vital spiritual truth. But to the question, Jesus responds equally preposterously. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, etc. Now be honest. You read these words and you thought... Why, well, I think Jesus maybe should have stayed in seminary a little longer. Why, well, it sure looks like work salvation to me. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, just be really good. Did, did Jesus think that our works would save us? You may remember verse 17 as the passage began, as Jesus started on his way. Here we are in the middle of a book, and it's a reference to starting on the way somewhere. Well, where is it going? What's the start of what? 
Look at verse 33. Jesus said, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles who will mock Him and spit on Him, flog Him and kill Him. Three days later, He will rise. Did Jesus think that our works would save us? No. You must understand that His response to the rich young ruler is not an explanation of the plan of salvation. It is a plan of revelation of the young man to himself. You, you must understand, as it were, the, the reality of your sin. But the young man, of course, will not see it, will not say it. Recognize what he does say. Jesus has just said, be really good. And the man responds, verse 20, Teacher, all these things I have done since I was a boy. Did you hear it? What did Jesus just get through saying? Only God is good. And two seconds later, what does the rich young ruler say? Me too. In saying as much, he breaks the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods. This, as it were, is the worst blasphemy that a Jew could utter. I am God. I am like God. And yet here is this blasphemy, this sacrilege before God, and the rich young ruler does not even see it. The reality of his sin is hidden from him, as it must not be for us. I recently heard Steve Brown in a message talk about having preached in a circumstance in which he had acknowledged being a sinner. And Steve Brown said a man came up to him afterwards and said, You know, preacher, all my life I've heard preachers and missionaries talk about what awful sinners they are. And you're the first one I believe. Because... You believe it. Do you believe it? I recognize that the maturity of the Christian heart is in the recognition that I am the chief of sinners. It's not somebody out there. I have to say this carefully, but I mean it. We must, each of us, say in the seriousness and honesty of our own hearts that I am the worst sinner I know. By that, I don't mean that I've committed the most heinous crimes I know. But given my privilege, and my background, and my understanding of the Lord, and all that God has done for me that I know of, my sin is a greater betrayal of my Savior than those who act in ignorance and spiritual destitution. I must know that about myself, as you must know. I must be willing and able to say before God, God, forgive me a sinner. I recognize my betrayal of your Son. God, forgive me. And perhaps it's our inability really to see that that requires Jesus to speak as He does. Not just having the rich young ruler see the reality of his sin, but ultimately even the evil of his righteousness. So by comparison against what he thinks is righteous, he will begin perhaps to see the evil of his sin. 
The evil of his righteousness is revealed in what Jesus says to him also. Verse 21, the rich young ruler has just said, I've been very good like God. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, well, there's just one thing you lack. Just one thing. Go sell everything. And then give it to the poor and then come follow me. Now you must understand what the reaction of the rich young ruler must have been. What do you mean one thing? That is everything. But what does it mean? Jesus has said, you must follow me first in my commands. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done that. I've been really good. And Jesus said, well, there's just a little more needed then. Go sell it all. Oh, and by the way... Then give it all away. Oh, and just one more little thing. Then come follow me. And if he does follow, where will he go? But to observe a cross on a hill where the Savior will die and to be made very sure that it's nothing he does that makes him right with God. All his righteousness is not enough. All of it, even the righteousness, falls short. You and I must know that. For our tendency is to believe that it is our righteousness that makes us right with God. If I can just give enough of it, improve the quality of it enough, that's what will make me right with God. It will not. When I was a child, I had to be taught how to use a cross-cut saw. My father was raised in the rural south, and he was taught how to use a crosscut saw, and his granddaddy was taught how to use a crosscut saw, and his daddy before. And you know, to be a chapel, you had to know how to use a crosscut saw. It did not matter that there were chainsaws for two generations. You had to learn how to use a crosscut saw. And I can remember one crisp winter morning using a crosscut saw, and we were tearing into a big log, and as we were getting into it, it, it was rotten on the inside. So as we just got a little bit into the log, it split off the cutting frame and fell onto the ground, and then sheared along the rotten face of the log. And to my childish imagination, I looked at that broken, rotten log, and it looked kind of like a horse's head. And so I collected it, I took it home. And I don't remember the occasion anymore, whether it's my dad's birthday or Christmas or Father's Day or something, but I took that rotten horsehead log and I nailed a two-by-four to it, put some sticks on it like legs, tied on a rope tail, and then stuck a bunch of nails down the side of the two-by-four, wrapped it in butcher bot paper and on whatever the occasion was, presented it to my dad as a gift. He took off the butcher bot paper and looked at it and smiled. That's wonderful. What is it? I said, well, it's a tie rack, Dad. You see those nails sticking outside? You can hang your ties on them. Well, he took it and leaned it against the wall in his closet because the sticks really didn't hold it upright. And for years, he used it as a tie rack. Now, I will tell you, when I first presented that gift to my dad, I thought it was really good. I mean, I thought it was probably museum quality. (laughs) You know, just, just ready to go down to the Metropolitan Art Museum and just be mounted there. But, you know, it wasn't too long and a little more maturing. I would begin to look at that and say, oh, dad, please get rid of that thing. I, I, I was embarrassed by its nature. 
What we must recognize is what we think is so right and good before God, if we see it truly for what it is with our mix of humanity and immaturity and sin, the best things we have to offer God, we say, this is really good. But even our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags to God. When we have done all that we should do, we are still unprofitable servants. And it's when we begin to see even our best works do not measure up that we begin to recognize how truly awful are our bad works. The late Puritan, John Calhoun, used to say that we don't truly repent not only until we see our evil doings, but the evil of our doings. That nothing measures up. That I begin truly to perceive in my best works is nothing that would make me right before God. I begin to sense the evil and the malignancy of my sin. And I begin to loathe it as I properly should before God. It is the beginning of repentance to truly loathe the sin that characterizes me. And more and more I'd see it does characterize me. But that just leads to another step. I begin now to long for sin's cure. If I'm loathing the evil, I want to be rid of it. And so I, as a mark of repentance, begin to desire confession. Like, like having poison in me that I want to spew out of my mouth. I want to get rid of it. When God's Spirit is truly working repentance in our hearts, we want to confess. We long for it. Jonathan Edwards, during the Great Awakening, was presiding over a great prayer meeting one time. Eight hundred men gathered to pray in a period of revival. The women were gathered in another prayer meeting. And at one point, a message came from a woman in the other prayer meeting to the men in this prayer meeting, over which Jonathan Edwards was presiding. And she, in her note, described her husband. A man who, in spiritual pride had become cruel and harsh and insensitive to his family. And she began to plead in this note for the men of the assembly to pray for her husband that God's Spirit might come and break him. But as Jonathan Edwards read the note and thought of who was writing, he began to think that perhaps the man who was being described in the note might actually be in the prayer meeting with them. And so he read the notice out loud to these 800 men gathered and then made the awful request. If you know who you are, would you raise your hand and let us pray for you? And at that moment of the Spirit, 300 men raised their hands. Because when the Spirit is working in our hearts, we long to confess, to be rid of the poison of the sin. We want, we long, we have to come to God. It is a desiring for confession, but it is also a desiring for grace. Because if I recognize it is not my sin, it is not my goodness that can make me right before God, I've got to look for another goodness. That we have to say. I will tell you, it is evangelical circles that often make a wrong move when it comes to describing what repentance is. We, we rightly go back to the language origins and talk about a word like the Hebrew shuv, repentance, meaning to turn. 
But what we often begin to describe repentance as is a turning from bad things to better works. Listen, repentance is not turning from one category of works to another category of works. We've already said, what are our best works? They're still filth before God. Repentance, as it were and must be, is only a turning from our works to God's work alone. I must turn to Him, my heart and my flesh cry out, for the living God created me a clean spirit. You must do the work. I am not depending on my works righteousness, my goodness, my right thoughts even. I am humble before God and I plead for grace. Repentance is not so much a doing as a depending. I depend now on a work beyond my own. I turn to God and I say, God, you must fill me, you must correct me, you must cleanse me. You alone are my hope. Repentance, the ancient church says, is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. Surely now, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, obedience is the fruit of repentance, but obedience is not repentance itself. It is not good works that make us right. It is a turning away from self. It is a posture of absolute humility before God that said, I offer you nothing but my own contrition. And when that is our repentance, then what we ultimately recognize as the sign of repentance is not just a loathing of sin, nor even a longing for its cure, but a loving, a loving of the Savior. We get that loving of the Savior by being able to delight first in His vision. Verse 21 is precious to us. The rich young ruler has just blasphemed God. And Jesus looked at him and... and loved him. Jesus knew the worst about him. And He would love him. I need to know that and you need to know that. The, the wording of Romans 2, 4, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That He would know the worst about us and still delight, as it were, to shed His grace upon us, would still delight to have us come. You must hear me. I know it can be wrongly said and oversaid. God may be angry at your rebellion, but He is never angry at your return. And it is that knowledge that makes you want to return. That you have perceived rightly the wonder of the grace and the love and the mercy of God. So now even when you feel you have wandered away that God would never receive you, that you are willing to turn back because you know of His mercy and of His love and His grace. It's the kindness of God that will pull you back and other sinners too. What will you preach? What will you say? Will you tell them of a God who delights to show mercy because it is what will make them turn from their sin to seek the God who is so merciful. If He is but the ogre in the sky, ready to get them when they step out of line, who wants to go back to that God? 
It's when they perceive that a God would love them so much that He may discipline them for their sin, but when they return to Him, He will embrace them with a love that is fresh and new and is like a father for His own child. We delight in His vision. But when we do so, repentance is marked by a delight in His path that we do want to follow Him now. Jesus said, come, follow me. Now, if I really delight in the love of Jesus, if I see all He is and the wonder of it, that's not a hard thing. I can remember my first real date with my wife. I can picture it now. You know, the long blonde hair and the red sweater, and it was a fall morning like this, a little bit further, so the leaves were turning, and we were out in this little Victorian village, and she said, would you like to walk with me? And I said, you bet. If I perceive the beauty of my Savior, the walk with Him is something glorious. And the fact that I even delight to walk with Him is a mark of a repentant heart. I have have perceived my own sin, but the love of the Savior is like this magnitude. He is so beautiful. Why would He lead me somewhere where it would not be a delight now to go? I'll follow Him. I'll do what He asks. Because in His path, there is delight to be with Him. And ultimately, that's the final mark of repentance. It is just Delight. I I know we look at this last verse and struggle a bit. The man's face fell. He went away sad. Verse 22, because he had great wealth. You say, well, why was he sad? He still had the great wealth. Because he didn't have repentance. Because the lack of repentance was depriving him of joy. Do you understand that? When I know that I am freed of sin and can walk with the Savior, the Prince of the universe, I can be with Him and walk with Him, that that now is delight. And I, I must recognize that. In your ears, what does repentance sound like? I think so often what we, what we think of is only the, the immature or even the beginnings of repentance. We, we think of groaning and groveling of grinding teeth and weary resolve. But what does repentance really sound like? When it has completed its work, it sounds like joy. It is singing. The psalmist says, The bones that you have crushed now rejoice. Cleanse me of my guilt and my tongue will sing. Repentance that is mature is delight in the work, the grace, and the glory of God in my life. If we could see the spiritual dimensions of our lives as clearly as we can see the physical dimensions, we would have no question what repentance looks like and sounds like. On our campus last spring, there was a young couple that had a new baby. And just just hours after it was born, The mother was nursing her new baby, and the baby turned blue. Something terribly wrong. She began to cry out to the nurses, Please, somebody come! Please, somebody come and help me with my baby! And the nurses rushed in, and they took the child in all of its hurt and destitution to where it could receive help. And now the young mother and her husband and other seminary students began to gather in the hospital room and to pray and to plead with God, Oh God, please help. This is beyond us. We can't fix this. Please, God, you must do something. And after hours, 
the doctors came back and they said, Joel Daniel will be fine. And then those in the room sang, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Oh, it was not hard to praise God then. Why should it be hard for us in repentance that we have perceived the wrong spiritually? Oh, God, this is so awful. This is me. This is my life. And it's my sin. And I recognize the awfulness of it. Oh, God, please fix this. I can't. There is not enough goodness in me. I cannot fix it. Please, your grace must take care of it. And when we plead out to him in contrition and ask his cure only, what does he say? But... I have made it right. So what must our hearts do? But express the repentance that sings. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. He has forgiven me and made me whole. Praise God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.